I want to just introduce myself. Um, if you don't know me, if we haven't met, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem, and I uh, would love the, the opportunity, the chance to get to know you and uh, to give you an air high five and to, to share, just, a, just to hear a little bit about your, uh, a little bit about your story. Uh, I've been waiting for the cold to hit, and it hit, and it's here. And somebody had been warning me and telling me, just wait till the first week of February. And uh, I tell you what, I was like, man, I think we escaped. Nope, it's here it is. So, um, <laughs> so we're adjusting. I, and, but but uh, in all um, goodness, I think that my body is actually really adjusting well. So that's a good thing. I don't feel like, like uber, uber scared. So hey, uh, the Dunham family uh, is in um, what I might call a new, new family rhythm as we're entering, entering into this season uh, of, of potty training. Um, and to be clear, <laughs> uh, Nikki and I are potty training. Trained. Um, so it's, it's, it's our daughter, Eden. Um, if you don't know, our family, our daughter, Eden, is two and a half years old, and she's entering into this, into this new and unknown season uh, of assessing uh, her body's needs and understanding when she needs to go to the bathroom um, and, and when she doesn't. And so what we do, and this, I, I guess I didn't realize how much this was radically going to transform the nature of our home. Right, and uh, and so Nikki, my wife, is really good about this. Is that she will constantly be asking Eden, like, or just saying, "Hey, like Eden, I need you to be to be um, mindful of your body. Like, how are you feeling? What's your body telling you? Do you need to go to the bathroom?" Uh, and so she's asking her this, like constantly, um, and she's, she's really, really good at that. Uh, me, on the other hand, <laughs> I feel like I'm not as good, and so Eden's just, meanwhile, running around the house in undies now, and, uh, and so I don't really think to ask these questions, and, and yet when I do, sometimes, like, if I don't ask, then we'll have an accident, <laughs> um, but sometimes even when I do ask, she'll, I'll say, do you need to go to the bathroom, and she'll say, she'll say, no, and I'll be like, great, and then she goes, yes, and then I go, well, which is it? Is it yes? Or is it no? Do you need to go to the bathroom? Yes. Okay, so what do we do? We, we run, like, or I pick her up, and like, you're, you're carrying this baby like, through the house as fast as you can so you don't have an accident. And you get her to, the, to this little potty, and then she sits down, and then the next thing you know, like five seconds have passed, and nothing happens. <laughs> Right, and so then she gets back up, and then she goes about her business, you know. And then uh, it's just it's just this over and over constant process of learning uh, her body. In fact, yesterday um, we were driving to go to Costco, and uh, and we got in the car, and so Nikki had yelled at me from upstairs to say, "Hey, don't forget to grab like the potty." And I'm thinking in my mind, going, "Like, why would I grab the toilet? Like, there's no need for us to take the toilet." And and then she goes, "No, no, no, like Eden's, Eden's toilet, Eden's potty." And I'm going, "Oh, okay." So like, I grab it, and then I put it in the car, and the whole time, and I guess this is just my naivete, going, "I didn't realize that potty training extended to the car." <laughs> space, you know? And so the, here we are traveling on this main road in this little toilet in the back of our car. And uh, sure enough, what happens is that two minutes into the ride, Eden says, like, we're, as soon as we're on the main road, Eden says, I have to go potty. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, well, what do we do? And Nikki's like, well, you should pull over. I'm like, well, it's the interstate. I feel unsafe. We shouldn't do that. So we wait, and we get all the way to, like, the Starbucks, and we pull off, and we get into the Starbucks. And, and so then we have this family moment, <laughs> Right, like we get into this 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 Starbucks parking lot, and uh, we pull out the toilet, and then we we get Eden on the toilet, and I'm just like looking around, going, "Hey, don't mind us, you know, we're just we're just in the middle of potty training. This is just, I guess, the way it works." And so then Eden gets on her little potty, and sure enough, nothing happens. And so then we put her back in her seat, and we're like, "Man, that was a waste." And she goes, like, ten seconds later, she goes, "I have to go potty." Oh, take her back out. 
put her on the body. And then what does she do? She actually goes. And we're like, oh, great, that's good. I'm glad that we didn't have an accident in our car seat. But then all of a sudden, you're in the middle of Starbucks parking lot, and you have this, this little tub full of potty. <laughs> and you're like, what do we do? <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's a bunch of snow. Here we go. <laughs> Thanks, Minnesota. You know, like, and you just you throw out the pee, I guess. And, and so we're in this, like, new, new rhythm. And so as, as I process this, there's this piece of me that goes, I know that it's hard for Eden as she is adjusting to these new rhythms as she's learning to assess what her body is telling her and what she needs, like she's learning to assess that. But it's also hard for Nikki and I because it, it changes our family rhythms. And so the reality is, as I think through this, I, I, I guess my point in this is that changing to new rhythms is not just sometimes a one-person thing. It's a whole family thing. It's hard for everybody. Like adjusting to new rhythms are really hard. And we started this, this series back in January called Cave Table Road. And it's really built out of our mission statement, which says that we exist really to live lives of love in, uh, or with God in community and on mission, right? And so Cave Table Road are these three images that, that we think capture the environments of our relationship with God, our relationship with people, and our relationship with the world. And so really Cave Table Road is meant in in so many different ways, really, to, to kind of take what's true on paper and to flesh that out into real life. And for us to go, okay, I begin to see how the rubber begins to meet the road, right? This mission statement isn't just something that we say or that's written on paper somewhere. It's really something that I intentionally and willfully choose to, uh, to live out, right? It's this kind of fleshing it out thing. And so if you haven't been a part of the series, the first one was the cave. We started with two weeks on the cave, and, and really this is a place where we, um, we engage in authentic conversation with, with God. Like this, this, this personal relationship, it's a, this incredible, neat opportunity that we have as Christians to be able to engage the very being who created us, right? And it's this awesome thing. And so when we're in the cave, as we retreat to the space to listen and to talk with God, this is primarily a place of inflow, like where he is giving us because we're empty, like we need him to, to give to us, right? So that's the cave. But then you have uh, the table, and the table is, is about how that relationship between me and my creator then extends into this circular um, pattern or this place where then I engage in authentic conversation with my family and with my friends, right? And so, like, that begins to, to move into this. And as, as I sit around this table, this is a place of inflow as well because I get to listen to um, other people who get to share and speak truth into my life as we wrestle through Scripture, as we wrestle through life uh, really together, right? Um, and so it's a place of inflow, but it's also a place of overflow because people need to hear from me. And so I begin to share uh, and speak into other people's lives, and we begin to build this community and these disciple-making uh, relationships, right? And then this morning, we're going to transition into the road, right? So you can kind of see this path with the, the footprints. We kind of want to keep all these images the same, and so it's like these feet kind of walking uh, down the path or down the road. And so when we think about the road, uh, the road um, is, is primarily a place of overflow, but if you look at this definition, it's the road is where we engage in authentic conversation with the world. Now, ultimately, this can be with any single person that crosses my path on any single given day. 
Okay, so whoever I cross paths with uh, on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, whether it's in the morning or evening, right, it's whoever I come into contact with, that is a road moment. But primarily, um, I want to highlight these three things because this is where God has intentionally put you and put me in these certain environments is that it's primarily where we work, live, and play. So then I would ask you this question, where do you work, where do you live, and where do you play? Like play is like the recreational side. Like what, what is it you do for fun? Who are these people that are in your life that God has strategically and intentionally put in your life? And so as we remember, then the, the road is primarily a place of overflow. So it starts with inflow and this cycle ends with overflow. Now, I want to just for a second, just pause to just to show the importance of how all these things work together. Because imagine that this cup represents your spiritual walk with Jesus. Maybe it represents your, your cave time. This is you, and then you have your creator, right, that you engage with, okay? This is that space that we, that we get that from. Which, by the way, I intentionally chose a dark-colored cup because I think that a couple weeks ago we talked about this idea of, like, we put on masks, and, and it's easy for us to, to be fake in certain moments and, and to not be real or authentic about what's really happening. And when I have a dark-colored cup, it's really easy for me to, to, to keep others from seeing what's really inside of me, how much I actually have. And so sometimes I think that when we look at other people's cups, we naturally assume that they're full because they're Christians, right? And so, like, well, gosh, like you come to church, you go to Bible study, so you must be full. But, but the, that's not always the reality. And so here's my, here's my question. Like, hypothetically, let's just say that you have, uh, or I, I'll just use myself as an example, I have 25 opportunities in a, in a given day um, for the road. I mean, that might be high, that might be low, uh, I, don't, I don't really know. But say I have 25 opportunities uh, of people that I come into contact with who cross my path. Uh, and if I have 25 people, like I could lay out 25 different cups that represent those other people. But what happens if, if this, is what, this is what I try to do? <laughs> what happens if, if I go into the road completely empty? Like if I don't have cave time, if I don't, if what, if what uh, doesn't, like doesn't happen in the cave, like if that won't make it to the road. And so I think it's really true, like for us to see, like what starts, like this whole process has to start with the cave. That's why of all three of them, in some sense, it's the most important. It's where God says, I just want to be with you and I want to give you that which you need. But as I am being filled and as I begin to overflow, then my, my relationship with the world begins to change. And so that's why these, these three things are so deeply uh, connected. So, but this morning, we're going to turn our attention to uh, the road. And so, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it, pull it out. We're going to be in a familiar uh, passage in, in John chapter 4. And if you don't know much about the Bible, uh, the Bible's put into two parts. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so, if you were to turn about three-quarters of the way uh, to the right, you would find the New Testament, which starts with Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you have John, okay? So, and then we're going to be in John chapter 4. Let me read the first few verses here for us in uh, um, 1 through 3. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Okay, so that's where we're just going to stop here uh, for a second. So, 
I just want to quick reference this because this is a great cave time resource. It's called the Merged Gospels. And he really he puts all the Gospels into chronological order. And so if you look this up, what he would say um, is that this passage, John chapter 4, most likely comes right after John the Baptist is arrested. So there's a lot of political turmoil uh, in the air. So it makes sense then that in this space, right, Jesus, he, he knows that these Pharisees are learning that he's actually doing more than John. And if John was arrested, Jesus is like, hey, I need a safe place to really do, to do ministry unhindered. And so what does he do? He makes this bold move to actually go um, from Judea all the way up to Galilee, okay? So if we have our map right here, so this would be, this would be Israel, okay? This would be modern Israel. And over here, you have um, the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have the Sea of Galilee, and you have the Dead Sea, and you have the Jordan River in here, okay? So, um, but what we're going to see, first thing, is that he wants to go from, from Judea, which is in the south, all the way up here to this area of Galilee. And so the thing that I want us to be really clear about, actually, I grabbed the wrong marker. I want this to be a different color. Um, we're going to see that the first thing that Jesus does is that he, he what? He went to people. And we go, that's, that's such a simple thing for us to learn about Jesus. And yet, it's, it's really, really, really uh, actually a very, very important thing. And, and the reality is, is that when we, when we look at Jesus' ministry, like people would oftentimes flock to him, right? But that wasn't because he asked them to come. He didn't like send out flyers and say, hey, meet me by the Sea of Galilee. Like people just randomly showed up because of his, his popularity, their fascination with his teaching and with his miracles and everything that really he did. And so people have this tendency to show up. Now when Jesus, um, just because he doesn't ask people to come to him, he does, if you might say, you might argue with me, say, well, Seth, he said to certain people, follow me. Well, yes, that's absolutely true. But when he says to his disciples, follow me, what does he actually do? Then he he leaves, and he takes them with them. Um, and so really, he basically invites them onto the road. He says, I want you to come with me as I do life and do ministry on the road. And so the bulk of Jesus' ministry is actually on the road, not in the synagogues, not in those places, not in like the first century church, but really like on the road. Okay, so here's where we get to verse 4, and we're going to find the second part out of this kind of this big idea, right? Verse 4, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this is such a short verse, but I feel like it's so easily overlooked, okay? It's, it's super easy. Um, and, and the reason why I think this is important is because the very first word in the Greek in this sentence is the word day, D-E-I, which means necessary, okay? It means necessary. It's where the, where the ESV and the NIV both get the word um, had. And so if you highlight the word had, right, we go, if we were to replace that with necessary, we would say, and it was, it was necessary from Jesus' perspective to pass through Samaria. So if we come back to um, our map right here, so if this is Jerusalem right here in this circle, Jesus is down somewhere in Judea, probably along uh, the Jordan River somewhere over here. And if we think, if it was necessary for Jesus to travel all the way up to, to northern Galilee with Samaria being right in the middle, right, because you kind of break it into to three different things. So Galilee's up here, Samaria, 
and Judea. And Jesus being down here, you might go, well, it was necessary for Jesus to pass through Samaria because he has to go there, um, like go through there in order to get to the north. But, but the reality is, is that it's not actually necessary for Jesus to do that. In fact, a lot of people, if they were here, would end up doing this. They would cross to the east side uh, of, the, of the Jordan River, and they would come all the way up here, and then they would cross back over here to get into the Galilee region. Now, and some other people, they would take this and they would just kind of travel and take this route. And the reason why people would do that is because this is a river valley. And so it's, it's, it's very flat and very easy terrain. And so it's the most popular roads. And yet what Jesus says is that I'm, I'm actually going to not do those and I'm going to come over here into, into this place. And so um, if it's not necessary that Jesus had to go through Samaria, then why is it that John tells us it was necessary? I think this is John's way of saying um, that this is Jesus' way of being intentional because we're going to find ourselves in verse 5 over at this little town called Sychar, uh, and he's going to come this way all the way over here with his intended route up to Galilee. And so when I think about the word day or, or necessary, what I'm thinking then is, and I'll change my markers here again. Oops, I left it back. I gotta get better at that. Is instead of the word necessary, I think of the word intentional, right? Um, uh, yep, yep, the Y is always the trickiest. There we go intentionally, right? And he intentionally. So we find that Jesus went to two people and then he intentionally engaged them, right? This is his choice to say, like, I am choosing to go through Samaria. Like, I, I want to do this. And so then we kind of ask this question, like, well, why in the world does he do that? Okay, so we're going to jump to um, to verse 5 and 6. I'm just going to read these just to kind of so we understand the context. It says, he came to um, a town of Samaria called Sikar, which we put on there, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, right? This is Jacob's well. And it was about the sixth hour. So it's a hot day. It's a lot of traveling. And he finally makes it here. And he gets to this well around noon, okay? But then enters into the story this, this woman in verse 7, right? And this is this crazy experience. And it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, right? Because then in verse 8, right, John tells us that his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And so we look at this and we go, like, gosh, that's really easy for us just to kind of pass over. But this is actually incredibly, incredibly intentional on Jesus' part. So when I think about this map, I go, remember, this is Jesus' road. He has intentionally chosen to go off the normal path and to go to a place where he really wants to to be, right? And this is super intentional on his part. And we go, like, what's the big deal? Like, it's a hot day, he's thirsty, he needs some water, okay? Well, we're going to see how, how intentional this is in the woman's response in verse 9. Check this. It says, and then the, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Okay, and then John, again, adds this little anecdotal thing, right? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, okay? So this is, right, this is a really, really, really big deal, okay? So if we were to come over here 
through map, we learn three things uh, about how Jesus is going to intentionally engage this person, right? And the first thing that we find, right, is that she is a, she's a woman, right? He intentionally engages her, and this is an important thing, I think, for us to, to realize, because, again, Jesus is a single Jewish male, and, and, and he's in this space with this woman, and there's nobody else there. It's just him uh, and this woman. Now, men rarely talked to women in public in general, unless it was their spouse, and especially not if it wasn't their spouse. And so, the, to enter into a conversation with this person would be to risk the entire community thinking that there was some type of adultery or impurity happening. And that's how cautious they were with these boundaries. And so, Jesus, he still engages her, even though like she is a woman in this space, okay? But then the second thing that we learn, right, is that, is that she is a Samaritan, right? Right, she is a Samaritan. So why this is important is because um, way back in the Old Testament, um, when um, the exile happened and all of the people in Israel, right, everybody who lived here was eventually sent to other places, right? And so like they were all sent to other places, but when they came back, after they had come back, a bunch of other people, kind of these pagans, had moved into this space. And so as people returned from the exile, what they ended up doing was intermarrying with these people who were already there. And that was really a big no-no in God's and so Samaritans, if you were a, if you were a, a healthy, um, practicing Orthodox Jew, the Samaritans were really, the people who lived here in your own country, were people um, that were half-breeds in a lot of ways. They're not really fully Jewish, and they don't really believe all of the same things that you believe. Um, in fact, it's kind of mixed with this other worship, because this syncretistic worship. And so, so there's these Samaritans, and Jesus engages her as a woman and as a Samaritan, okay? And the last thing that we learn from this Oh, I did that backwards. There we go. Is that there's probably some element of shame happening in this woman's story because, um, and it's just kind of reading between the lines, but women typically in that environment would go to the well together early in the morning. And so, because they did that, because it's outside of the heat, like all of the heat is done and all that is passed. And so, here this woman enters into the story right around noon all by herself. And it's really as if Jesus looks at her and goes, I, I realize that this woman has a lot to hide. She has stuff in her past, things going on in her life that she does not want other people to know about. She does not want to engage with these people. So how many of you guys have ever heard the phrase, um, there's an elephant in the room? Right? It's an easy elephant. It's, whenever, it's, it's an easy thing. So whenever I picture this in my mind, I think of an elephant, um, which is this massive, large creature. Uh, I, I picture him like tiptoed, <laughs> like, with, like on all tiptoes with all of their legs together, which would be really hard for an elephant. And like in the middle of this room, like with this look on his face, like wide-eyed looking around the room as if like pretending like, oh gosh, I hope nobody notices me. And we know that the reason why that phrase exists is because it's impossible. If you see an elephant, like, it's like you're going to talk about it. And yet we so oftentimes ignore the elephant in the room. And so when I think about this story, uh, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and she has so much shame in her life. We enter into the story, we look at Jesus, and we go, man, how many elephants are in this room? Right? You go, there's an elephant, there's an elephant, there's an elephant. And yet, so for us, like, we, we would go, man, this is super awkward. 
This is, this is something I'm very uncomfortable with. I don't think I could do this, right? And we shy away in these moments, right? We think that, that we're afraid that we're going to say something wrong or that we're going to look foolish. Uh, maybe we're afraid that our friends and family, that they will perceive this or the way the world perceives it and they will look upon us differently because of the way that we interacted with that person. Or maybe we're afraid just because we're uh, uncomfortable. We're like, man, this is suits just is beyond awkward. I can't do it. Like, there's just too many elephants. One elephant is too many. Three is definitely too many. And so we don't, and we choose not to. Or maybe we're afraid that we'll offend somebody. That's maybe a little bit more positive, but it's still based in fear. And when I think about Jesus, I think it's, it's really easy for us to look at this and go, um, sometimes I think people think of Jesus that Jesus could enter into these scenarios because he saw everybody the same. Like, he just saw them pure blank as sinners who needed forgiveness. And I just don't think that that's true. Why? Because Jesus was the creator, right? And so he intentionally designed people in a certain way. So I think it's really important for us to know that Jesus wasn't colorblind, right? He, he didn't embrace this woman despite the fact that she was a woman or despite the fact that she was a Samaritan or despite the fact that she had a shameful past. He actually embraced her in light of those things, very intentionally, he engaged her in those things in conversation, right? And so I think that's really important for us because we have to go, if Jesus wasn't colorblind, if he wasn't blind in this way, that's an important thing for me as a Christian to learn how to emulate. I need to be able to see people for the way that they were designed, okay? But then we get to verse 10, and here's what Jesus says. This is how he answers her. This is an incredible answer. He says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Right? This is an incredible, incredible line. And I wish we could unpack all of this, but we can't, right? It's just this phenomenal thing that Jesus is recognizing that the world that he's engaging, the people he's engaging on the road are what? They are thirsty. And he's not talking about the heat of the day. He's talking about the spiritual thirst and hunger that we have for something that will actually bring wholeness and completeness to our lives. So then her response in verse 11 says that the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water, right? This is like a Captain Obvious type of moment, right? As she's like, hey, you, you have no bucket, you have no ladle. And so when I think about this woman, we learn almost something We've learned something else about this woman right here. And again, the text doesn't say this, but I think that this is probably true, right? She is... She's skeptical. Like, this is her attitude. Like, she's like, you're, like, you have nothing to draw water with. How is it that you can actually get this water? Like, have you ever met somebody who's skeptical? Like, you're, you're entering into these road conversations, and people are like, yeah, what, Jesus? Yeah, come on. Like, like that's, just, that's just bogus. Like, Jesus, that, that doesn't really exist. Like, faith, that's, that's so old school. And people are just so skeptical. And I think about this woman in her life, and it's, it's as if she's been sold too many magic pills. So Nikki and I started uh, this, this new diet uh, and exercise thing that we, that we got online in order to get like this, the fractionary reduced cost, you have to watch all of the videos, which are really boring. Um, and so you watch all these videos, and then you know you you get hooked in at the beginning, but then they try to sell you all these supplements, right? And then they get to this one pill um, that, that I don't remember what they called it, but here's how he described it: He goes, "It literally melts the fat off of your body." 
right? And I'm like, whatever, you know. And then as he goes, he goes on and he goes on. He tells me everything that's in it. And by the end of the time, I'm like, man, give me that pill. Like, I, like if, it, if, it like melt, if I don't have to like exercise in the same way and if it just melts fat, I'm in, right? And this is just the way that we do. Like we get sucked in and, and we, we think that there's, gosh, there's, there's some way in which these magic pills exist, right? But then when it turns out to be fake, like we grow uber skeptical. And so here's this woman, I think rightly so, has just, she's bought into this before and she has no reason to really trust Jesus, right? Okay, so then we move into verse 13, right? And here's Jesus' response to, to this woman. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, right? He's talking about the well in front of her. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, right? Do you see how this infomercial is kind of spilling out? And you're like, you're like, you're skeptical, and you're like, well, well, well you know, like, and it just kind of grows and grows and grows. You kind of, you realize it'd be easy to be skeptical, And Jesus says, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Like you can see how this would feel like a kind of this magic pill moment. And yet Jesus has no need to impress this woman, right? He's really aiming at something that is much, much deeper than this, okay? So I want you to check out this, this verse, because he's alluding, as we look at living water, he's alluding to this passage uh, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, right? And here's what it says. It says, this is, a, this is a prophecy against Israel, and God says, for my people have committed two evils, right? Okay, so the first one is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, okay? So we see that, that living waters, like theme being pulled out in what Jesus is talking about, with this woman, right? And so this is the first thing, like we, we've given up on God, like even though he's the fountain of living waters, we actually just kind of let it go and we, we forsake him and we move on. But instead what we do is we replace it with something else. And then so the second evil that we have committed is that we have hewed out cisterns for themselves or broken cisterns that can hold no water, okay? So what is a cistern? Let's take a, take a look at this picture. Um, this is a picture from, from our time in Israel and you can see this big old long kind of massive tunnel. And you see that on the top there's this rock, and then on the bottom it looks like there's this plaster. And so, so really what they would do is they'd dig this giant hole uh, in the ground, and then they would plaster all the way around. And so in, in this desert climate, they could collect uh, rainwater. It's kind of like a storage uh, for rainwater. But over time, here's the problem with cisterns, is that over time the plaster cracks, and it gets holes in it. And so the, whatever water goes in, it just starts to ooze out in, in every single possible direction. And so over time, like the cisterns, they just don't work, right? And so what God is like looking at, he's going, man, you could build a cistern or what could you do? You could have me, the, the fountain of living, living water. So, so if you imagine like this scenario, this picture, like in, in this time and these people out just like digging this massive hole, this massive cistern, just over and over and over they're digging because and, and they, they, they need to collect water. And yet all the while there's God who's right here with this magic heavenly hose and the water's just spewing, just coming out of the hose over and over and over. He's like, hey, how are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, don't mind me, we're just digging a cistern. And he's like, cool, 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 okay. Looks at his hose, looks at the cistern, right? right? This is the scenario. Like, why would you ever, ever ignore that and take the cistern, right? And yet, even though in a dry climate, we go, well, that makes sense. In a dry climate, like, we would always choose a spring. We would always choose that. But 
Guess about how, think about how much we do this in our spiritual lives. Like we, we hew out these cisterns of materialism, of relationships, consumerism, right? Idolatry, all of these things that we're constantly digging holes. And God is off on the side going, really? That's what you're going to choose? That's the pill that you're going to buy? You think that that's what's going to make you happy? Like what cistern, what well are you really drinking from, right, that, that doesn't have what ultimately God can provide? And Jesus knows that. And so look at, this, look at this in verse 13, right, when Jesus says, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, right? So you have this, this reminder, right, that what Jesus is saying is like, hey, there's going to be no more broken cisterns. There's going to be no more of that coming up. Right? No more of that. I will give you exactly what you need. And then still she engages. And in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Like, and when I read this, I just hear that skeptical attitude over and over and over. Okay, God, like, man, dude, if that's, if that's true, just give it to me. I, I would love to never be thirsty in a dry, hot climate again. That would be awesome. By the way, do you have anything that will fix my husband's snoring? Like, could you give me anything else while you're at it? Like, there's so many things that I could get from you if this were just true, right? If it were just true true, and yet I think she's skeptical of what Jesus is offering to her in this moment. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus is going to shift the conversation. Let's read verses 16 to 18, and he's going to identify something that's deeper in her life that will draw her in in a way that nothing else could, and here's what he says. He says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And then Jesus, like using his, his, his knowledge here, right, he says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have actually had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so what does Jesus do? He engages her in conversation, and then he finds the broken cistern. He finds the place where she has been pouring and pouring and pouring all of her life into, asking that she would gain satisfaction and happiness over, and finally she realizes that there's something different about this person named Jesus. And Jesus is like, man, I can see that you're struggling, and I want to help you to struggle well, okay? Look at verse 19. She says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem what you will worship, um, in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, okay? So that's through verse 22. See, really what Jesus does here in this moment is that he tells her, um, or we find that she, this final thing about her, right, is that she has different beliefs. She says, like, what you believe is not what I believe. Uh, and just like, hey, that's, like, I, I, I get that. I acknowledge that. But what I want you to know is that the Jews have the full revelation. You don't have the full revelation. We have that. And what, what I can tell you is that there's something greater and bigger to this life than what you could ever, ever imagine. In fact, he's saying it has nothing to do with location. It has nothing to do with any of that. There will come a time when all of that will be nullified. And what he's going to do in verse 23, check this out. Uh, if you go to 23, um, yep, right there. It says, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father 
in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, this hour, Jesus is referring back to his crucifixion. He's referring to his crucifixion, and he says, in, in just a moment, just a small time, all of this is going to be changed when I die on the cross for you, right? And then she gets into this zone so he's pointing her to himself, right? I am the perfect sister, and I am the well of living water, right? If you're thirsty, come to me. And then she, she looks at this, and in verse, um, I think it's in verse, where is this, 20, um, 25. Okay, look at verse 25. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he right? Like, this is a so incredible thing. Like, what started in this simple conversation, can I have a cup of water, ends, right, with this, with him saying to her, I am the Christ, and he points her to himself. You see, Jesus isn't gender blind. He's not colorblind. He's not any type of blind, but he acknowledges a person's uniqueness. He engages that uniqueness in conversation, and then he finds the broken cistern, and when you find the broken cistern, you can point people to Jesus, because their life is just seeping and losing water, and Jesus is the one place where they can get something that they never have had before, right? And in the meantime, all this happens. The disciples come back into the fold, and they look, and they're like they're totally astonished that Jesus is even talking to this, to this woman. And in the meantime, the woman then leaves. Like, she actually leaves her jar, the very thing that she came to get water in. She leaves her jar, she runs back into town, and she tells everybody. By the way, those are all the people that were shaming her before. And all of a sudden, now that she's met Jesus, the one place that she runs is to the place where she used to be fearful. And now all of a sudden, she's no longer fearful. She's no longer fearful. And this is what Jesus says. We'll wrap up here. This is what Jesus said. As he's talking to the disciples, he says, do you not say, in verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest, right? This is like, this is the Jesus moment is he's teaching them and he's teaching us. You see, I think that in the American church, we have this perception, like it's a, it's a very common American church model. If you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. And yet what Jesus says is that I would rather it start with you going to people. And so what do we learn from Jesus as we finish this, right? We come over to this, is that Jesus engaged with people's gender. I did that wrong, sorry. He engaged with people's gender. And in today's world, we have people who are male and female. We have people who identify, although we would say wrongly so, people identify with transgender, right? Um, or no gender at all. Like, it's a confusing world. And Jesus, I think, would enter into these, these conversations, right? Um, he would enter into, right, into the race and ethnicity conversations, right? He would do that. Um, what is this? Um, the shame, right? And so what he would do is he would also engage people's story, right? I did that backwards. I'm sorry, I'm trying to go quick, right? Um, and then we have um, her skeptical, right? So what does he do? He embraces people's attitude, right? Mm. Okay, I thought this was going to be easier. 
right? And the last one is that same thing, right? right? It's the same thing as those beliefs. Like Jesus teaches us to be a people who go into our world and, who I, and, and whether they rightly or wrongly identify with certain things, but that we embrace and we connect with them, we engage with them in these conversations despite their gender, despite their race, despite their story, despite their whatever attitude they have and whatever beliefs they actually may have, that we engage them, whether it's, it's Muslims or Buddhists Buddhists or, or Hindus, right, or Shintoists or, or whatever religion or people who are no belief at all, like atheists and agnostics. Jesus says, like, I want you to go into the world and I want you to connect with and engage with these people in authentic conversation. And as we look at this, we go, man, like, I, I know this is incredible and this is huge for Jesus. We go, not every road story needs to be this big, <laughs> Okay, like that would be intimidating. That would be really, really frightening for us. It doesn't need to be that big. I think it can be as simple as going to the grocery store and asking the clerk, how was your week? It can be as simple as that. And then when you get in your car, what do you do? You pray for them. It's so simple, right? There's so many things that can lead to these moments, and yet it can be at a gas station, it can be at a hallway in a cafeteria, in the school, people in the elevator, right? Wherever it is, find these conversations and then start to engage people uh, in, this, uh, in this way. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna wrap up. I'm gonna ask the, the worship team to come up. I had a few other things, but because I'm already way over. Um, Let's go to these questions. I just want to ask these questions. I call these snap lines because, um, because when you're in construction and you take that little blue chalk line and you pull it back and you snap it, it leaves an imprint. And so really these questions are meant to, to help you leave with, with an idea of what is the Spirit challenging me and what's the imprint that he's left in my life. And so the first question is this, is are you being intentional where you work, live, and play to engage people in authentic conversation, right? It's kind of the overarching question, right? And there's the second question is, do you go p- to people or do you make them come to you? <laughs> and I love this last question. Are you ignoring any elements, right? Is there anything in your life that you need to start engaging in in conversation that you would have otherwise over- overlooked? Let's pray. Father, There's a piece of me in this moment that just wants to slow down. And I know that, you know, there's a, a time limit on these things and so we want to be sensitive to that. But God, would you, would you give us pause? And would you help us to see, to not rush through this, to not push past and to, and to think that, man, like, like, okay, get it, I get it, I'm supposed to do Cave Table Road. Lord, would the Spirit just, would you lay on our hearts for something right now. Would you snap the line in our hearts that allows us to be very thoughtful, to, to, um, to assess my walk with Jesus and to know that mo- so much of Jesus' ministry was on the road, right? And we think about how many opportunities there are in a given day. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see those opportunities and to embrace them as the Spirit nudges us that we would begin to, to enter in even in small ways into these little conversations as we begin to hear people's stories and help us to see and find the broken cisterns in people's lives and when given the opportunity that we would be able to point people to the fountain of living waters. And so, Lord, would you, give us, would you give us the ability to do that this week as we leave this place? And, Lord, as we enter into a time of communion and just finishing with song, 
Lord, I ask that, uh, that we would reflect on those questions, that we would assess our walk with you, that, that, that taking communion wouldn't just be something that we do, but it's something that we would take seriously. Because Lord, because Jesus, may it be our heart's prayer and hope that we would be made to be like you. In your name we pray, amen.